0: Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Sky Simplified podcast, exploring astronomy through a different perspective, one episode at a time. My name is Pranet Sharma, and I'm a high school senior, as well as an absolute lover of everything astronomy. With me today, I have Dr. Hobie Wedler, co-founder and CEO of the Hobies Collective. And today's episode is all about exploring astronomy through the eyes of organic chemistry. If this is your first time here, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate us. The best thing you can do for this podcast is to share it around. So please let your family, friends, postman, neighbors, grocer, plumber, teacher, professor, anyone who you talk to know about this podcast. Now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, it's time to begin. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Okay, let's get started on today's topic, exploring astronomy through the eyes of an organic chemist. Dr. Wedler, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you on. Let's take a minute and please share with your listeners your journey and how you got interested in organic chemistry.
1: It's a real honor. Thanks so much for uh, the introduction and, and for inviting me on your show today. I, I love what you're doing. Uh, you, you very kindly called me Dr. Wedler. Uh, your other listeners can call me Hobie. Um, I am a totally blind uh, PhD in organic chemistry. I earned my PhD in 2016, and I actually am an entrepreneur uh, currently mostly focused in the food and beverage space uh, for my work right now, but I do a lot of science education for uh, kindergarten through 12th graders. I love helping college kids decide what what career path they want to follow. And, you know, once a chemist, always a chemist. So I think what we're going to do today is talk about um, how organic chemistry compares to astronomy. But uh, maybe in a future episode, we can we can talk about how other things I'm working on sort of compare to astronomy. Yes,
0: exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, in today's episode, I kind of want to focus on on that for now, but you're okay. a very accomplished person, and there's so much that we can discuss. So I'm looking forward to, if, if you'd be willing, of course, to have you back for future episodes. so, so much. Yeah, of course. So kind of to discuss, you know, this, I have, I have a sort of framework of questions. But of course, this is a show that encourages discussion, open discussion about anything and everything. That's what I like the most about it. So I'll I'll start us off with a question to get the ball rolling, and then we can start talking about it. So kind of what's your story, you know, regarding organic chemistry, you mentioned um, that you were blind. So how did that kind of factor into getting into organic chemistry and getting interested by the science and studying it?
1: Oh, no, that's a great question. Yeah, so, um, you know, being born blind, I, I had amazing parents who were just super engaging and really wanted to do do the most for my career and me and just make life super exciting and, you know, tell show me really to take... I take responsibility for myself and my actions. This is my life to live and... You know, my brother and I, my brother sided, we were treated the same way and, you know, they had super high expectations of us, which I think is such a blessing and something that I always thank them for. And they expected us to have super high expectations of them so that the, you know, playing field was set and it all just sort of made sense and worked out. And um, you know, we were, we, our lives were our lives and we took responsibility for them. And what I found that I really fell in love with in high school was regular chemistry. I had a great high school chemistry instructor, and I've always had a passion for teaching or explaining things, even from a very young age. I love taking a, a topic or something and, and being able to explain it to people in a way that makes sense and that they can connect with and, and think through on their own. So that's always been something that, uh, that has been important to me as I Uh, Go through my life and live my life is explaining things to people in a way that makes sense to them that they can they can totally connect with. And when I say at the heart of a teacher, I don't mean I like to you know oh this I'm going to stand up here and be the professor and tell you everything that you don't know and have it be that way. I just want to get people excited about things maybe they didn't know they were excited about before. So I had a high school chemistry teacher who did that for me, and I thought you know wouldn't it be fun to do this for other students as well? So when I took organic chemistry for the first time, I realized that, you know, the way that I think about organic chemistry and study it is the same way that I think about traveling as a, as a blind person through space. So we can talk a little bit about that later, but I think that that is what allowed me to understand that really I had a cool advantage when it came to thinking spatially and understanding how atoms like to fit together to form molecules. And I think that really ties together with with sort of how astronomy works
0: that's very very cool and i know that you know we've we've discussed this earlier for listeners um but you were also interested in astronomy i think earlier so what, what kind of drove that interest was it similar to this in which you know visualization isn't necessarily like super easy and like you know being visually impaired almost gave you an advantage in the visualization aspect of it
1: you know, I think my interest in astronomy and astrophysics just came from a, a very young age of, of thinking about, you know, days that we would take uh, boat trips uh, one week a year with my with my dad's side of the family on a, on a lake in Utah called Lake Powell. And that lake is really special because it really doesn't have much light pollution. You're out in the desert and we would sleep on the on the top deck of, of this houseboat and just gaze at the sky and people would describe what they saw to me. And that early on just made me think, wow, there is so much out there. I've got to understand this. I I just thought, wow, there is so much out there in the world that I want to understand and need to understand. And uh, that just just led me to really get excited about what the heck is out there. Right. I started thinking about in my mind, you know, Our mind doesn't have to care about how big or small something is. Visualization is visualization. And, you know, I I did start to think about, wow, I I didn't have any sort of notion of how, just how far apart things were, how small we are here on earth. But I did have a notion that when I think about, when I lay in bed and think about, you know, routes that I'll travel the next day, from my house to the bus stop, and kind of go through the route in my mind, or from the bus stop to wherever I'm working, yeah. or you know, from my house to the grocery store, or whatever. I do this periodically just to keep my my travel skills alive, you know, and, yeah. and working well is to to think through routes virtually. And I realized I can think about where the sun is in respect to the earth, and this is all at a pretty young age. Yeah, where we are with respect to the other stars that we're seeing. And it created this notion long before I realized it was the same sort of similar logic that was true for organic chemistry. I realized this is this is really amazing. This is really something that uh, that I can think through.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's essentially, you know, early astronomers, that's, that's all they did. Um, we didn't really have any of the technology that we have today to really look really deep into space. So a lot of early astronomy was just looking at relative motion and just, you know, as you mentioned, seeing if if I can plot out how I'm traveling on Earth, how would that compare to traveling in the universe?
1: Yeah, and I guess astronomers, um, you know, a few hundred years ago would do that.
0: Yes, precisely. Um, One thing that I really, you know, looking back to the past, the reason that, you know, geocentric theories of the solar system existed, you know, just just that theory that everything revolves around the Earth (laughs) was because astronomers believed or at least in, in the very early times, by the time, you know, we reached around the Enlightenment, honestly, as early as the 1400s, Copernicus was starting to uh, kind of defraud that particular school of thought. But very, very early, um, Ptolemy was a very big kind of proponent of, of this theory. It was just this idea of relative motion. And, and I think that's kind of crazy, you know, how, how far we've come from thinking like that, to being able to view it in a way that we realize that relatively where are the people who are moving around the sun even though it looks like the sun is moving around totally. us yeah
1: totally and it's easy to feel like you know the world is flat around us yeah. right? because yes, it feels flat and until that's you true. go up above and look at it you, you don't realize necessarily that it's round and you know a super similar thing is true with organic chemistry we can't see atoms right, right. that's the really crazy thing we have microscopes now well uh large um you know atomic lasers and devices absorption devices and things like this in order to in order to see atoms really high power electron microscopes um you know to kind of see atoms and see how they fit together to form molecules but it's still insanely hard to do because they're so tiny For sure. so everything is in our mind so you know our view of of how carbon atoms connected to form molecules or how carbons and hydrogens and oxygens and nitrogens connected to form molecules, organic molecules, or halides, or whatever the case, sulfurs, or whatever the case may be, you know, we didn't understand that. And it's just been in the past 100 or so years that we've understood concepts like hybridization and, uh, you know, how atoms bond, and that's all led us to really understand um, molecules and, and bonded groups of atoms better. But anyone who says they really understand, they have a full understanding of bonding and, Molecular structure, I think, you know, is, is probably not necessarily right because we're always learning more and we're always discovering more. So that that sense of fascination and discovery is at the core of, of what's happening in organic chemistry. You know, just when we think we understand something really well, we realize maybe something's a little bit different. And that's why I like to say we're never proving anything with chemistry. We're just we're just furthering our hypotheses and providing more theory to why they're probably correct.
0: This is a really, really cool idea, you know, because it's essentially the same in astronomy and astrophysics. So kind of out of all, all the fields in physics, astronomy is probably the field that experiences the most uncertainty. And out of all the fields of physics, astronomy is also probably the one in which there are the most guesses. So a lot of the theories that we have of the universe are just kind of hypotheses just based on kind of theorizing what, what should happen. Um, but it's the observations, in fact, that kind of help prove it, which I think, as you mentioned, is is the case for chemistry too. So one thing that I wanted to ask is kind of from your perspective in the early stages, how did scientists discover bonding on the level that, you know, we know um, before we were able to see the bonding occurring using, you know, really, really high-powered microscopes?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, scientists like Gilbert Lewis at UC Berkeley Came up with sort of the the basics of the electronic structure of atoms. And uh, he's famous for what a lot of people learn in in general chemistry, which are the Lewis electron dot structures that we draw out, showing how atoms bond together to form molecules. Um, Before his time, Mendeleev set up the periodic table and and realized that elements of, of similar properties should be near each other. And what happened to fall out of that, which, which Mendeleev knew a bit of in his time is that, um, Mendeleev also knew a bit of this, is that atoms that, you know, had similar properties also had similar electronics on the outside of the atom. So they bonded to similar things or they created similar ions. And that's how we started to look at, okay, wait, well, one thing can come together with another thing and form an actual bond where they're sharing two electrons between these two nuclei and we, we got to know a lot about atomic structure and, and these sorts of things using uh, old experiments like uh, Ernest Rutherford did the gold foil experiment where he would you know smash particles into very thin foils of gold and see some of them get repelled when they would hit the nuclei. So we had a good sense of atomic, a fairly good sense of atomic structure, but it wasn't until the early 1900s that we understood that you know there's so much i should say there's so much in your question that i could go on <laughs> to, but we you know we started to learn in the in the early 1900s that electrons sort of behave like both waves and particles right and de Broglie is is responsible for that and then once we figured that out we we learned that yeah electrons can be shared between two nuclei um and that actually holds the nuclei close together but a lot of this science is embedded in in early, early quantum mechanics when figuring out um, just the the way that electrons interact with each other and interact with other electrons to form um, to form chemical bonds.
0: I think okay, so there's there's a lot that I'd like to discuss there, but I think I'd first want to talk about the wave-particle duality that you mentioned because that's actually very critical to astrophysics as a whole. So essentially, um, for reference, like the research that I'm doing, I need to see the photons as both waves and particles. You know, we're looking at the photons as waves when we're looking at their wavelength, because only a very particular wavelength is relevant to my research, but we're also looking at them as particles because the way that, you know, they're interacting with with the matter that I'm studying, which is warm, hot intergalactic medium, is they're being absorbed. And, you know, waves can't be absorbed. It's the particles being absorbed by bumping into electrons, you know, at the ground state, so I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit more. You know, I think that's, that's one of the most important parts of astrophysics today, just having that concept of absorption and emission spectra. And spectra, incidentally, cool. are what got me into um, astronomy in the first place. So kind of, c- could you talk a little bit about how that developed and how scientists realized from a chemistry perspective, what was happening when spectra were being produced?
1: Oh, man, that's a fascinating question. Yeah, you know, a really good way to see what to tell what something is when you can't see the atom is to energize electrons in that thing right. and then watch them come back down to the ground state. So the ground state is like the zero energy state, right? Everything's yes. hanging out, everything's totally comfortable. The minute you zap it with energy, whether that energy is a wave or a particle, I guess depends, but they're one and the same. We've we've just discovered and talked about it you excite electrons and this can be in an organic molecule or in just in a single atom. And when we excite electrons, they don't stay excited forever. They have to go back. They want to go back down to the ground state. They're lazy. You know, they're kind of like people, they're lazy. They don't (laughs) necessarily want to get up in the morning, right? So yeah, you excite them, you get them going, you get them moving. And then they have to immediately drop back down to the ground state where they Um, you know, where they, where they settle down and in order to do that, they release energy. So you can see about how much energy they release by looking at what color, if it's in the visible spectrum, the light is or what frequency it is. If it's not in the visible spectrum using any number of instruments, whether it's infrared or heat or ultraviolet, which is higher frequency than visible. And we can basically understand a lot of what something is by, by absorbing light into it and then letting that light emit and, and, observing what happens. And that's another, another aspect that I'd like to share as a totally blind organic chemist is that, you know, so much of the electromagnetic spectrum that we work with is non-visible. We think of chemistry sometimes as a visible science, as a visual science, but number one, nobody can really see atoms. (laughs) And number two, electromagnetic spectrum is vast. In order to see what one thing is versus another, the vast majority of the electromagnetic radiation that's coming off of systems is not visible, so we have to use other instruments to pick it up. Right. For instance, one technique that I use a lot that's actually totally linked into astronomy—that I used when I studied organic chemistry is nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR.
0: Right,
1: and that's where you're actually not looking at the electrons, but rather you're looking at the nuclei of atoms and spinning them around using very, well, relatively low frequency radio waves, right? right? And then looking at how those radio waves are emitted tells us a ton about what, about how the the different nuclei are connected and bonded to one another. Maybe, maybe we can think about how that sort of idea, it's the same thing. It's you you look at absorb, you get something to absorb a light and then you can't see what it absorbs, but you can easily detect what the system emits. Sure. So I think that's totally connected to both chemistry, organic chemistry, and astronomy. Because sure. it, again, Pernet, you can't look at a flask of something that you just made in organic chemistry, yeah. some novel organic molecule that you're spending a lot of time making, and look right at it with a naked eye and say, Yep, that's my four chloro, you know, toluene. You can't do that. Yeah. You need other techniques to see it. And it's very similar to astronomy.
0: Yes. And that's exactly like, something that I wanted to touch up on. You know, like, astronomy, again, similar to chemistry, people think that it's a visual science. But so much astronomy research is done in wavelengths that aren't visual. You know, a lot of early astronomy, of course, was done in visual wavelengths. Yes. But, the, the, but the field has kind of expanded so much from there. Like, for example, the research that I'm doing is kind of a combination of both X-ray and radio astronomy, both of which are wavelengths that human eyes can't perceive. And kind of... I was really, really fascinated by, you know, what you're saying about in organic chemistry in order to figure out what a compound is, you use kind of a form of spectroscopy because that incidentally is how astronomers find out the atmospheres of exoplanets. You know, if you're if you're trying to see, you know, you may see on the news a headline, oh, planet Kepler 1b or something has has been, you know, discovered to be the most Earth-like planet. So the question obviously is like, how how was that done? And the answer is spectroscopy. You know, they would look at the light from the star of that particular star system passing through the atmosphere of the planet. And then they would do their analysis on that light. And then they would be able to tell what the elemental composition of that atmosphere is in order to tell whether it sustains life or not. So I think this connection is just so crazy because just like those compounds that you're making in a lab, you can't be looking at a planet and just be thinking, yes, I can clearly tell what the atmosphere of this planet is made of. You need to look at the light passing through it.
1: And spectroscopy is such a powerful tool for all chemists and, and physicists, honestly, who, who study subatomic particles. You know, we need ways to see these things. We need ways to look at them so that, and, and just like astronomy, the early days of chemistry where you put a certain salt of a, of a metal, you know, in a flame and you see a certain color released. And you say, whoa, why is it releasing that color? You figure out that that color, say it's blue or uh, green light that's being emitted. That color is the electrons, you know, settling back down to the ground state. So we know then we have a huge data point because we know how much energy they absorbed because we know how much energy they released. And that's that's really powerful because we can take that back with us and figure out, you know, okay, this is the reason for why this much energy was absorbed. And it was really experimental studies like that that drove the beginning of of quantum mechanics, you know, that that made that all come to life. For sure. For so sure. I think that's really interesting. And, you know, chemistry is, we say it's the, it's the science of everything because it's, <laughs> you know, we eat it, we drink it, we breathe it. But really, we wouldn't have chemistry if it wasn't for the universe forming and exactly. it wasn't for astronomers. So, well, if it wasn't for astronomy. So what I kind of like to think about, and I'm sorry to sort of divert the conversation a little no, bit, no, is no, how no, you're fine. we, you know, we work with carbon. Right, that's organic chemistry, but we also work with hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and sulfur and all sorts of bromine, chlorine, fluorine, all sorts of atom types. And uh, relatively few compared to inorganic chemists, by the way. <laughs> and what's crazy is that those atoms, the very atoms that we work with, every single one of them had to be formed in, in a star, in a dying yes. star, right? Maybe you can yes. tell us a little bit about that because I want personally organic chemistry students and or you know, chemists of any kind alike. Next time you're in the lab working with something, or heck, next time you take a sip of water, think about the fact that the atoms that formed that water had to have been made in a star. Yes,
0: oh my goodness, I am so glad that you brought this up. So essentially, you know, the lightest elements in the universe, let's say up to boron, were formed very, very early in the universe during a period called Big Bang nucleosynthesis. So um, listeners, I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with the concept of fusion, but essentially nuclear fusion occurs when elements of, or lighter elements, essentially combine to form heavier elements, releasing tremendous amounts of energy in the process. So fusion most typically occurs in the universe naturally in stars, when you have, that's kind of what what fuels a star. You have so much energy and, and pressure from all the mass of a star that it ends up smashing these atoms together and releasing all kinds of energy. But in the very early universe, these lightest elements were fused just by the the pressure of the universe itself because of its size and because of the limited kind of amount of, of matter that was within it. So it was enough for the universe to essentially start synthesizing its own elements. Then when the universe started to inflate even more... Certain clumps of it form together and form what we know as stars. Again, doing the same process of smashing elements together. So most stars on what we call the main sequence in astronomy, the star or the sun, for example, is on the main sequence right now. Um, main sequence stars work by fusing hydrogen into helium. So essentially, when a main sequence star is gonna near the end of its life, it's gonna fuse it's gonna run out of hydrogen in its core to fuse. And eventually it's going to start fusing the heliums together because the pressure is too much to kind of let these helium atoms be drifting about on their own. And the heliums will fuel into um, lithium, which will fuel into beryllium, which will fuel into boron, into carbon. And then most stars the size of our sun would stop at oxygen. But stars that are immensely huge, let's say a thousand or a million times bigger than the sun, They would keep going, and they would keep fusing elements until we reached iron. So iron is the heaviest element that can be fused within the core of a dying star. At that point, it's way too heavy for the the pressure of the star to fuse it anymore. So the core collapses, the outer layers expand, and we experience what astronomers call a type 2 supernova. So this is how all the elements in the universe are formed. First, fusion in the very early stages in the universe, in the period called Big Bang nucleosynthesis, And then all of them were fused in the core of dying stars. So there is a quote by Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, and that states, you know, the summary of that quote is that all of us, every single one of us, and all the things that we interact with, they're all stardust. So when you really (laughs) think about it and put it into perspective, we wouldn't be here without the universe, and, you know, being in the universe, essentially, we're being made by the universe, which I just always thought to be absolutely crazy.
1: I have a question for you on that, for Go for it. Is, is it true that all the hydrogen and helium that will ever be made were made in that that very beginning time of the universe?
0: Yes, yes. So I'm sure, um, listeners, one of the most, you know, most important equations, or probably one of the most famous equations in the in the world is einstein's e is equal to mc squared which relates energy and mass so a concept that most listeners should be familiar with is conservation of energy this is a concept at the cornerstone of physics Um, physics would not exist essentially without conservation of energy and by relating energy and mass einstein was essentially able to bring conservation of energy into mass therefore we state that there is conservation of mass in closed systems as well So if we visualize the universe as a closed system, all the mass that was created at the beginning of the universe is just being transformed. No new mass is being created. So as a result, all the hydrogen and helium that was created at the beginning of the universe, that's all that we have. Other elements may transform into hydrogen or helium. There may be, you know, some form of process that that changes that. But that is the amount of matter and as a result of hydrogen and helium in the universe.
1: Yeah. And, and the reason I think that's so interesting is because in chemistry, and I know we're talking a little bit about general chemistry and not delving deeply, deeply into organic chemistry here, but in all chemistry, we talk about the law of conservation of mass. Mm-hmm. You know, if you run a chemical reaction and you weigh out all your reagents perfectly, yeah. you should have the same exact mass of reagents at the beginning as, as you do at the end. Exactly. Yeah. Oftentimes we'll do this with students and they'll say, but you know, my, my reaction flask is lighter now that the reaction has occurred. <laughs> And that can be true. And oftentimes, that's true, because you evolved a gas, right? That gas just went into the atmosphere didn't go away. Exactly. It was. Yeah, yeah, so there's a law of conservation of energy and a law of conservation of mass that totally apply and really interconnect physics and chemistry, which ultimately leads us right back to the universe where we are considered, I suppose to be a closed system, where we have a certain amount of energy, and a certain amount of mass, and it's interesting, isn't it, Pratt, to think that like we're not going to ever run out theoretically. We're not going to yeah. run out of hydrogen, but no, like yeah, the reason that is is because a lot of the hydrogen and helium that forms into other elements is by the process called nuclear fission, reconverted back into hydrogen. Precisely. Would you say that's true?
0: Yes. Yes. The universe is a very mysterious place, and <laughs> I know that's kind of a strange statement to make, but the universe you know there were there were various theories kind of defining how the universe worked um in in the early kind of years some scientists thought the universe was infinite you know but that wouldn't necessarily make sense because if you have an infinite universe you have infinite amount of things within the universe and that means you have infinite gravity, which means the universe should collapse upon itself. And because I'm here talking to you, we know that that isn't the case. Um, the other alternative was that we have a closed universe, a finite si- like a finitely sized universe. But the issue with having a finitely sized universe is that you don't have any force counteracting gravity. And everything starts to fall in upon itself. So it's kind of a similar situation, but instead of having infinite gravity, you just don't have anything repelling gravity. But... In the universe that we look at today, it's an expanding universe. So the universe is not infinite by any means. It is finite, but it is changing. It is getting larger and larger and larger. And there are plenty of theories about how the universe will die as well as, as a result of this expansion. But as a result of this, there's there's no new stuff, you know, being created. In an infinite universe, when you have an infinite amount of anything, infinite like, infinity is such a weird concept to conceptualize. Like, humans cannot perceive infinity... To, to be how, how large it really is. So that just would not be feasible. So as a result, when you, when you think about the universe, everything that was created in that beginning period is just transferred to today. It's just getting, you know, spread farther and farther apart. So, so interesting. Yeah, so as a result, we hypothetically won't necessarily run out of anything because we can't use it up. You're just transferring it from one state to another. That's that's the part of conservation of mass. While no mass can be created, you can't destroy mass either. It's just turning into something else. So, and
1: that's what's so bizarre to me is that we're just expanding the universe in terms of space, right? but we're not creating more mass or energy. Exactly. We're just using what we what was created for us. Exactly. Yeah. I want to I want to quickly talk about a couple of concepts, if you don't mind, that are just super important to me. You know, I, I mentioned Perfect. a little bit earlier on that as an organic chemist, I feel that I have an advantage, really, as compared to most chemists, because I, um, you know, I, I think of, not compared to most chemists, I'm, I'm certainly a lot not as good at at many things, but in terms of in the very specific area of visuals visualization and spatializing. Things I really do think about things in my mind, and I was lucky enough to study under Dean Tantillo, Professor Dean Tantillo at Davis, who studies computational organic chemistry, and we studied computational chemistry and understood, um, you know, really trying to understand mechanisms, which reaction mechanisms, which are really explanations of why one why an electron goes from one place to another. To turn one chemical compound into another. And we need our mind to visualize that. Right. A lot of sci students draw them out. But I would navigate in my mind and basically do these mechanisms in my mind. And it was the same way that I would use my mind to visualize the route that I would take through my campus or town to get to my next destination. Sure. And I realized that there's no sense in making, you know, like in, in letting chemistry be any different than what I use to think about my surroundings as a blind person, I can't see anything, so I have no light perception. So everything is a visualization for me, and quite literally, you know, if I can think of in terms of meters and feet and understand my surroundings physically, uh, how how far is it to get to this local grocery store? It's about 0. 0.4 miles, so about you know almost two thousand feet, right. right? But if like there's no reason we can't think about that same exact stuff, not the same thing, like how far is the store, but, right. but any sort of similar concept using angstroms and nanometers, which are 10 to the minus 10 and 10 to the minus 9 sure. meters, respectively. Yeah. And it's it's the same thing in astronomy. There's no reason we can't think way far out. Exactly. larger. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's, you know, like... The, the phrase is always the sky is the limit, but really that isn't right. true because there's there's so much more More than just just the the, the roof above our heads if you will on, on our planet There's there's just literally a universe of possibility out there Which which I always I, found absolutely insane.
1: I find that incredible I want to do a little comparison with you. Okay on on like sizes of things and maybe you can help us understand size in the universe yeah, a go little for it.
0: sure
1: so like let's just take an atom we we live on planet earth right where we feel like our planet is pretty big yes and when we take a a drink of water we're bringing those H2O molecules into our mouths or when we cover something with aluminum foil we're we're using a sheet of aluminum atoms the thinnest cheapest aluminum foil you can use is more than 50,000 aluminum atoms thick right so that's that really puts it into perspective for you how tiny exactly. an atom is. Yeah. And within that atom, the the place in the atom that contains ninety nine point nine 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 nine, many more nines after that, of the mass, a percent of the mass of that of that atom is kept in the nucleus. Yes. If we consider one atom to be the size of a huge football stadium, including all the stands and parking lots and everything, the nucleus would be relative to that it would be the size of a peppercorn in the middle of that stadium. Yes. which So that's crazy to
0: me. I, I always found that insane. And um, actually, this is a very interesting thing that I, I also, you know, before I, I kind of discuss the scale of the universe, um, do you want to talk about why we don't just fall through things when, when atoms are so much empty space?
1: Oh, absolutely. No, that's a great question. And that's because of forces, um, electromagnetic forces that are that, that exist around atoms that basically repel. So you have electrons on your hand that are repelling anything else that you touch, right? And electrons don't necessarily like to attract. Well, don't they? I should restate that? Electrons do not like to attract to one another. So when I clap my hands, you can hear my hands clapping, and to me it feels like they're coming together. But really, all that's happening is electrons are repelling themselves. So that's why, you know, when we touch something, we're not actually touching matter. We're just feeling a force of
0: electrons right so i will talk about the scale of the universe i really want to but you just brought up a super super cool connection that i wanted to make really quickly so in early times you know we used to visualize the orbits of electrons around the nucleus much like orbits of let's say planets around a star of course we know that's incorrect now because electron orbits are absolutely crazy like you can never tell exactly where an electron is going to be just some areas have a higher probability than others versus you can almost exactly tell where planets are going to be and this interestingly is is the biggest kind of discrepancy or this is what causes the disagreement between general relativity and quantum mechanics like quantum mechanics is saying that everything is fuzzy and we have no idea where anything is um, with certainty like you can't really say that all relativity depends on you being able to tell the position and velocity of objects with you know s- like crazy amounts of certainty so, you know, we never know. It's we, we don't know what's going to reconcile them one day, but, but hopefully hopefully it's within our lifetimes. But yeah, so... And what's
1: interesting there, though, Pranet, too, is that smaller particles tend to be a little bit more fuzzy. For sure, and that, yeah. that also comes back to our wave-particle duality. You can consider any particle moving through space a wave or a particle. So yes. the Bergler's equation is that that wavelength equals Planck's constant, which is H divided by the object's momentum, and an object's momentum is its mass multiplied by its velocity. So, you know, you might have a baseball flying through the air at a ball game. You can figure out its momentum, and divide H by the Planck's constant by that momentum, and see that that baseball, which we know and understand as a particle, is really a wave with a really tiny wavelength.
0: That is so cool to think about. Like, all these everyday objects, you know, that that you would not expect to have the same properties as, as something as tiny or as fast as light or electrons actually does. And and yeah, yeah, I mean, listeners, I encourage you to try this. You know, like, it blew my mind. I'm sure y'all will as well. And, you know, just, just it's a pretty simple mathematical process. You know, just look at Planck's constant, divide that value by the mass of whichever object you're throwing, and then estimate the velocity, multiply it by that, and you'll get the wavelength, which, which is just absolutely insane so yeah i'd love to talk about this for hours and hours but i think we should be wrapping up a little bit just from constraints for my podcast um sure and kind of to, to to finish things up wait um let me talk about the scale of the universe really quick um yeah you know we always talk about the universe in terms of of light years because that's how big it is. When you think about, you know, a light year may not seem like a very intuitive uh, term for distance, but a light year is essentially nothing more than the distance that light travels in one year. Now, to put that into perspective, it takes light one second to travel around the Earth seven times. So a particle of light can traverse, like, the entire circumference of the Earth that we consider to be so big seven times in one second. So one light year is close to six trillion miles, you know, and and then the nearest star is is about four light years away. the The galaxy is a hundred thousand light years across, huh? and if you if you keep zooming out, you know, we have the solar system, which is within its its own kind of neighborhood, which is within within the Milky Way galaxy, which has its own galaxy neighborhood, which is within the Virgo cluster of galaxies which is within the Linnaekeia supercluster of galaxies. And when you get to this stage, you know, superclusters of galaxies, You that's kind of the, the largest gravitationally bound object in the universe, are these galaxy superclusters. Just these insanely large filaments of galaxies all just stretched out across the universe. And these, this is what's going to stay together. You know, people think that the expansion of the universe will push, like, the Earth and the Moon apart or whatever. But they're going to stay together, um, all the way as you zoom out until you get to superclusters. Now, individual superclusters are expanding away from each other, but superclusters within them are the largest gravitationally bound objects, and they'll be staying together even with the expansion of the universe. But yeah. I love
1: that.
0: Yeah, just just kind of a sense of the scale of, of the <laughs> universe, which is just mind-boggling. But, hey, no.
1: how how long does it take for light to travel from the sun to Earth?
0: Eight minutes. So so in in other terms, you know, you can say that the sun is 8 light minutes away from the earth. Yeah. So There it is. There you go. So
1: That's amazing. Kind of insane.
0: And and this I think I, I really do want to keep talking with you and about this, but we do have to wrap things up, so I'll just finish on this note. That's what I love the most about astronomy, you know, is like everywhere you look in space, it's like a time machine. You're looking back in time. If you're looking at a star, you know, 10 light years away, You're looking at what that star looked like 10 years ago, because it took light 10 years to reach you. If you're looking at a star 100 million light years away, you're seeing what that star looked like 100 million years ago. You're not seeing what it looked like today. And I just think that's absolutely crazy, because telescopes end up becoming these vehicles for us to look into the past, which is just insane.
1: Organic chemistry allows us to look both in the past at certain things that were made by by earth and by mother nature a long time ago for very practical reasons yeah and into the future at what we can make from what we learned from the past
0: which is just which is just crazy and that just shows you know the power of science you know like anybody who discredits it would just be just be wrong yeah um kind of to wrap things up if there's like one thing that you wanted to share with like the students the astronomers the chemists who are listening you know just anybody out there what's like what's one message that you want to share with 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 our listeners
1: Keep your mindset super positive because that'll allow you to do whatever your heart and mind are set to. And there's just keep an open mind to all the possibilities that come your way and never stop learning. Never stop wanting to learn new information and think deeply and critically about what you learn because just like the universe is so large, uh, knowledge is vast and you'll never be able to learn everything. So just...
0: Keep learning as much as you can. Thank you so much, Dr. Wedler, for coming on the show. I hope you listeners um, are a little bit more enlightened. I know I sure am. Is there uh, anything that you want to plug, like uh, social media or websites?
1: Yeah, people want to reach out to me anytime. Don't be a stranger. Get a hold of me at my website, hobiewedler.com. That's H O B like boy Y W E D like David L E R.com. And I am Hobie Wedler at for every social most social media handles, so TikTok slash Hobie Wedler, Instagram slash Hobie Wettler, et etc. Reach out, don't be strangers. Awesome.
0: Thank you so Thanks much. Yeah, I'll I'll put all of these links and these tags in the description of this episode. So listeners, make sure to check that out. And yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Listeners, if you have any questions, make sure to drop them off at skysimplified.com. And until next time, clear skies.
1: The Sky Simplify podcast is created,
0: hosted, edited, and produced by Fernand Sharma. The music is by Fernand Sharma. For questions about the show, go to www.skysimplify.com. As always, thank you for listening and clear skies.